Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called People of Hope, a study in 1 Thessalonians. In this series, we will see that even in trials, the way of Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. Thanks for joining us today. Every year, Time Magazine puts out its list of the 25 most influential people in America. I believe last year it was Dr. Anthony Fauci. Now, interestingly, when they put the magazine out, they make a distinction between influential people and powerful people. The magazine actually says it this way. These are not necessarily the most powerful people, but they're the most influential. And I think that's a helpful distinction. Let me put it in my own words why I think it's helpful. If you're following on your notes with me, power changes people from the outside in, while influence changes people from the inside out. When you have power, that means you have money or the government or some sort of authority that you can force change upon people. You can change their behavior. So they change because they have to. I'll give you a really profound illustration of this. I hated Brussels sprouts growing up. And yet because my mom was powerful in my life, I was forced to change. I was forced to eat Brussels sprouts. Now, influence, on the other hand, you are targeting the inside of a person for change. You target their heart. You target their mind. You want to change their views about something. So listen, that they want to change. Power changes from the outside in. Influence changes from the inside out. But the reality is, we all know this, no real change happens unless it happens from the inside out. You'll be happy to know that I now really enjoy Brussels sprouts because I was influenced to cook them in a different way that actually makes them taste good. (laughs) Now, by almost any measurement, the Apostle Paul has to be considered one of the most influential people to ever exist. Definitely makes the top 25. I'll put them top five. But the point is, friends, Paul had no power at all. He had no money. He had no authority backing him from the government. He says himself he wasn't even a good speaker, and yet he changed people with God's help from the inside out. As we've been learning, Paul was a traveling missionary. He would go to all throughout the known world at the time, and he would preach what is called the gospel. We talked about that two weeks ago, the good news of God's grace that can give us peace. He would go to a town like Thessalonica, and he would come with this incredible influence that created this uproar in the town of all the powerful people there that he would have to often run for his life. He would experience beatings for his influence. He would experience prison because of his influence. He would not be allowed back in towns because of the influence he was having on the people. And the people in power didn't like it. Why? Because they couldn't handle his message. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The Jews didn't like him. The Greeks didn't like him because the message he was preaching was a message of influence, changing a person from the inside out. Hundreds of people, thousands of people were influenced to change because of the message that Paul preached. Paul understood something. You can't force people to change. 
you can influence people to change. Part of me regrets the title of this message because it sounds a little bit like a self-help message here. How do I influence people to change? But let's just understand really clearly here, what kind of change was Paul looking for here? He doesn't want people to start eating their vegetables. If you're following on your notes, Paul wanted to influence others to find the hope of Jesus. And that hope, that gospel is still influencing millions of people today, changing us from the inside out. Now, here's the thing. Every one of us in this room, I guarantee, we have parents, we have children, we have siblings, we have friends, we have coworkers, we have neighbors, we have people we work out with who need the hope of the gospel. And we've tried to change them. Sometimes we use power, we use manipulation, but we don't see any of those kinds of things working. Why? Because real change only happens from the inside out. And what I want to look at with you together is why Paul was so influential in this, why he had such great influence in the time of his world. We're continuing this series. We started three weeks ago. We call this series a people of hope. We are a people of hope, as we talked about already this morning. But if you're following on your notes in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to see that even in trials, Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. So let me invite you, if you haven't already, take your Bible, turn it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting in verse 17. If you don't have your own Bible with you, we have some black Bibles in the seat underneath you there. You can find this on page 957. We're going to look at how Paul influenced people to change from the inside out, all with the hope that we can do the same still today for the glory of Jesus. Now, here's what I'm going to tell you right off the bat. If you've been here for any length of time, you know that I'm kind of a logical thinker. I like to think in sequence, A plus B equals C. And I came to this section this week and I'm like, oh no. Paul's all over the place. Like he's writing a letter, you gotta remember, and he's really emotional in this letter, in this section. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna read this whole section. It's a longer section. That's why I'd love for you to have your Bible with me here. And then we're gonna kind of unpack it a little bit there. So if you're ready, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. Paul writes, but brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens, not Athens, Athens, friends. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and co-worker in God's service in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. For you know quite well that we are destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as we, you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid in some way the tempter had tempted you and that our labors might have been in vain. But Timothy has just now come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love. He has told us that you, have always, you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now, we really live 
since you are standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy we have in the presence of our God because of you night and day? We pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. How do you influence people to change from having no hope to having hope? If you're following on your notes, the first way is to invest in them with authentic love. If there's one thing you can tell from this section, it's how much Paul loved these people with a genuine love. Let's look at a few examples of these. The first one right away in verse 17. Can we read it out loud together on your notes there? It says, But, brothers and sisters, when we were orphaned by being separated from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. Paul uses this crazy word, orphan. That's strong. That is a strong word. He feels literally like a child being taken from his parents. Several months ago, I was down the hall where our nursery rooms are. And we experience some of that intense pain, right? When you drop your child off to the nursery, the the crying, the yelling for mom, the yelling for dad. And Paul's using the same language here. So emotional does he feel. He feels like being ripped away from his parents. This is so interesting. Last week, if you were here, you remember Paul talked about how he felt like a mother to them, how he felt like a father to them. Now he's telling them, I feel like a child to you. So he's using these powerful family metaphors to describe how much he really loves them. To use today's language, Paul gave his heart to them completely. I know that sounds a little cheesy, but here's all that means. When you really give your heart away to somebody, When you really give it away, when you personally invest in someone so much, your life becomes wrapped up in their life. Your joy becomes wrapped up in their joy. I think we understand this, right? When you've personally invested in someone so much, if they're indifferent or if they're unhappy, you're unhappy. You can't experience the kind of joy in your life if they're not experiencing joy in their life. If you're a parent, you understand this. If your kid were to come home and tell you, I was bullied today at school, you don't just go, oh, that's too bad. No, you love them. You're connected to them. And so your heart breaks along with them. Paul feels this exact same way about these people. I don't know that I do with a lot of people. This is a whole church, and he has this heart for them. But let's be honest, not all of our relationships are like this, right? The truth is, you can be involved with someone, you can spend a lot of time with them, you can talk to them, you can even instruct them, you can listen to them. But the whole time in these relationships, you can have a code of Teflon on your heart. They know it, you know it, and the result is they will never be changed because you really haven't made the investment. Paul has made the investment. He has made a tremendous personal investment in these people. Let's look at some of the other comments he makes. In verse 17, after he says those orphan comments, he says, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see. Intense longing. Then down in verses 19 and 20, he says, for what is our hope? What is our joy? You, you are our glory and joy. Wow. He has put so much into these relationships that his joy is clouded if they're not experiencing joy. To me, the most astonishing of all the statements is found in chapter three, verse eight. 
Paul is so committed and connected to these people that if they weren't standing firm in the faith, he says, it would cause me to die. Now, I'm studying this and I'm like, wow. I'm just gonna be honest with you. I'm not sure I'm there yet with a lot of you. How does Paul come to such a deep, intense affection for these people? Well, just remember, Paul's a traveling missionary, right? This man, he would go into the towns and he would preach the gospel there, but then he wouldn't just leave. He would actually stay there sometimes for years. He would sometimes stay in people's homes. He would never abuse their hospitality like Brian talked about last week, but he really spent time with them. If you're following on your notes, in the truest sense, Paul's love grew by doing life together with them. It's not just a slogan. He really practiced doing life together with these people. I mean, can you imagine? There's got to be times when they're sitting around the kitchen table and they're asking him all kinds of questions about the scriptures. He probably spent hours with them, right? How awesome would that have been? He's talking to the married people in the church, the singles in the church, the widows in the church, the parents in the church, explaining, here's what it would look like for you to follow Jesus in these areas of your life. He, through lots of time, developed an authentic love for them. And guess what? They developed a love for him in return. And it's from this place, Paul clarifies, my absence from you isn't intentional. I believe there's some false teachers, Brian talked about them last week, who are saying, see, Paul obviously doesn't care very much about you. He's not even willing to come back and visit you. No, he wants to be there. He can't. You got to remember, this is before the cell phones, before emails, before text messages. He has no way to check in on them. How frustrating would that have been for somebody you really love? When I was a junior in college, I had the privilege of traveling throughout Europe with a couple of our professors from our college. This was pre-cell phone, believe it or not, youngsters. We didn't always have those. And I was a teenage boy. You know what that means? I didn't call my parents very often. And I remember calling them once when we were in Israel, and there was a lot of things happening in Israel at the time, scary things, and they were like, what is your problem? Why aren't you telling us that you're okay? I mean, this is how Paul is feeling right now. He's not just sitting in Athens unwilling to come to them. He wants to come to them. But he tells us Satan has blocked his way. So he sends Timothy instead. I'll come back to that in a minute. And he comes back to Paul. He gives them the report. Look at what he says about it in verse 8. Now we live. Because you stand firm in the Lord. It's a powerful word he uses there. Before Timothy came back, he felt like a fish out of water without oxygen. Now he's revived, knowing that these people he loves are standing firm in their faith. Now I got to ask myself, is this an exaggeration? Can Paul really experience this kind of intense love for these people? I mean, you know how preachers are. We like to a little hyperbole, a little exaggeration at times. Is Paul exaggerating his love for them? Here's all I'd say. The results of his ministry are so incredible. This must be the case. When I first came to Cherry Hills 19 and a half years ago or so, I came fresh out of seminary. I was like, I'm going to be preaching some dynamic sermons. I know Greek, I know Hebrew, I am going to impress these people. Pastor Gary, Pastor Jeff pulled me aside and they gave me this this advice. They said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I'm like, 
I spent thousands of dollars <laughs> to learn Greek and Hebrew. And now I need to love people. Friends, if you want to influence people to change, the people around you have to know you love them, that you're willing to invest deeply in them with authentic love, that you're willing to take time to share life together with them. You can't do this with everyone, but are there some people that you can influence in this kind of way? Second way to influence others to the hope of the gospel, if you're following, is you must be willing to sacrifice for their welfare. Where do we see this? Let's read verse one of chapter three out loud together there on our notes. It says, so when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. Paul, remember, he sends Timothy to go visit this church. I just need you to know what a sacrifice this was for him. First, there's a sacrifice of distance. Here's a map. It's probably not the the greatest, clearest map, but I just want you to see there's over 500 kilometers between Athens and Thessalonica. And so Paul is like stuck by himself in Athens. Not only that, but I just want you to consider how much Paul really loved Timothy. He calls him at different times, his greatest blessing, his own coworker, his son in the faith. And he says, I'm willing to look at all of the resources in my life because I love you so much, I'm willing to send Timothy to you. This was a profound sacrifice for Paul. I think the people knew it. Now I need to confess as I study this passage, I don't look at my life that way most of the time. I have a tendency to look at my resources and think, how can that help me experience the kind of joy I want to experience? I think we all tend to make decisions like that. How is this going to be for my best benefit or my greatest good instead of thinking about others? Like, how could I give away my life so that they might live? On top of that, we're just bombarded today with a culture that tells us all the time, every commercial that comes on, it's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about your happiness. I will never forget, I had like this profound moment when we went to Disney World. We're walking into the Magic Kingdom. This is when our kids were young and younger. And I hear this song. Somebody can probably tell me the name of this song if they still play it. But literally the lyrics were, it's all about you. I'm like, what? It's all about you making millions of dollars. That's what this is about, Right? <laughs> Paul understands something I need to grow in. We need to grow and It isn't all about me. If I really want to influence people to change, especially change in the hope of the gospel, then I have to be willing to sacrifice my needs, my wants, my desires. Paul shows us here, if you're on your notes, if we really want to influence others to change, we must set aside our needs and desires for their sake. Whenever Paul writes about marriage in the New Testament, this is essentially what he says. You want a thriving marriage? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What did that look like? He died for her. Wives, submit to your husbands. Mutual willingness to sacrifice is how we change. Finally, in order to influence people to change what we see in this text for the hope of the gospel is we must be willing to challenge them to grow. This is where the rubber meets the road right here, right? We like love. I'm even okay with sacrifice. This part's hard. 
And what I mean here is you can love somebody with a deep, authentic love, even to the point where you're sacrificing for them greatly, but sometimes real love is going to require pushing them to grow. I think there's too many parents today. I can fall into this temptation. I want my kids to like me. And so I'm unwilling to help them grow, to discipline them, to disciple them on this path and on this way, but that's not real love. Tim Keller was really helpful for me in describing this. He uses the idea of loving people with our hearts and loving people with our minds equal. And so listen, even though Paul loved these people, he gave his heart away to these people. He wasn't emotionally dependent upon them. He didn't need their approval for him to thrive. He didn't need that for his self-esteem. Paul loved them with his heart, yes, completely, but also with his head. Where do I see that? Well, gosh, when we get to chapter four, just wait. Listen, here's how you live a life worthy of the gospel. Listen, these are the things that you need to grow in to live a life of holiness. But we see it right here in this text as well. In fact, I love this verse, how he ends this little section in verse 10. Can we read that out loud on our notes there? Paul writes, night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now notice, heart, I pray most earnestly that I may see you again. Head that we may supply what is lacking in your faith. Now, listen, that's a pretty soft translation of what that actually says here. You want to know literally what Paul says right there? I can't wait to see you again to address your shortcomings. How'd you like that letter? I love you, I love you, I love you. I can't wait to see you again and address all your shortcomings. Yay! But here's the truth. He knows you can't really love someone unless you're willing to put yourself out there and help them grow. Too many of us want people's approval. We want a person to need us. We want that person's love, but we don't necessarily want what's best for that person. We want what's best for us. And when this happens, you won't be able to give criticism or help or advice You're afraid because your identity is wrapped up into how they may view you, right? That's not Paul. Look, I don't mind if people are unhappy, as long as they're not unhappy with me. God, help me. Because that's a sign of someone who is so afraid of another person's disapproval that I'm unwilling to love them enough to put that at risk. Not only can you, can you not give criticism, you can't take criticism. If you're just loving people with your heart and not your mind, you're devastated by criticism. I went through a season here at church about 10 years ago where every time I would step into my office, whenever the flashing red light of my voicemail box was going off, I would have a panic attack because I just knew. I still like laugh every time I walk into my office today, like, oh, okay, I'm good. Why? Because I couldn't receive criticism. We need others who can help us grow. Obviously, if the heart isn't there, though, I don't want to hear what you have to say. But if the heart and the mind are connected, that's love. Sadly, this isn't the reality today. Keller says it this way. I quote, we live in a talk show reality today where people believe you should only give away your heart, you know, love and invest in people and all that. But you don't tell them the truth. You don't say, this is right, this is wrong, I want your holiness. No, no, no. You must never express moral evaluation. 
You must never evaluate someone morally. You must never say, this is right, this is wrong, and this needs to be changed. Now, first of all, as he points out, this is a contradiction because to say you must never evaluate anyone morally is evaluating something. It's evaluating someone. But beyond that, how do we ever expect ourselves to change? How do we ever expect other people in our lives to change if we're not willing to speak the truth to one another? This is different than being a judgmental person. A judgmental person doesn't have the heart. They just have the mind, right? They are happy to speak the truth to you because they don't mind pushing you away. A loving person has both the heart and the mind, and they want to use truth to draw you closer to themselves and ultimately closer to Jesus. When I first came to Cherry Hills, first couple times I preached, there was a guy in our church by the name of Jim Davis. Some of you know Jim and Christy Davis. He would take me out to coffee every time I spoke, and I would be really nervous because he was going to go over the sermon with me. But I knew he loved me. I knew he really wanted to see me grow and flourish, and I needed that. I needed help to help me grow. He spoke the truth into my life, and I'm forever grateful. If you're following on your notes, we speak truth to redeem, not to judge or punish. Somehow, this is what Paul's able to do. And this is the only way people that you love will change. They need to see, yes, that you're so utterly invested in them, that you're willing to love them with an authentic love, that you're willing to sacrifice for them. But ultimately, real love will take the chance to help another person grow. The reason this is so important is because there's other forces at work in this world that are influencing people. In our passage, Paul mentions two of them. In fact, if you're following, Satan and persecution can be roadblocks to change. They can keep us from experiencing the hope of the gospel that Jesus wants us to experience. Two times Paul mentions Satan in this passage. Once blocking him from getting to the people he loves. Once he's so worried that this tempter is tempting them to fall away from their faith. He also talks about persecution all throughout this letter. And he's worried that that too might change them in the opposite direction. Cause them to stop standing firm in the faith they know in Jesus. Even for us still today, we have an enemy who doesn't want us to experience the hope of the gospel. Even us today, we're going to experience trials and persecution following Jesus. Now, I know the kind of persecution we experience in Springfield is probably not what we immediately picture. But I think it's a form of persecution. I call it social or relational persecution. For example, people at work might think you're crazy. You're a little nuts that you still go to church. I don't want to downplay that because that's hard. It's a socially hard thing. People might think you're absolutely loony bins to save yourself for marriage. When I was in high school, I had some friends, some girls who were like, there is no way you're doing that, and they would make fun of me. I don't want to downplay that. Of course, elsewhere in the world, followers of Jesus are being tortured and shunned and excommunicated, having their heads cut off for refusing to denounce the way of Jesus. We may not face that, but regardless, we will face trials if we're truly following Jesus with our whole heart. It's to be expected. And here's the thing, that can either influence us for the good, to follow Jesus more wholeheartedly, or for the bad, pull us away from him. But for Paul, 
All of this, all of the reason he's writing this is because he wants to leave the Thessalonians and us with an overwhelming sense of hope. Hope. If you're falling on your notes, he wants to leave us with hope that change is worth it for today and the day when Jesus returns. My life purpose, I really believe, is to help people see that the way of Jesus is the best life right here, right now, today. To help people believe that Jesus promised that following him is the abundant life, really is the abundant life. Every other life will fall short for you. There's hope for today. And yet, Paul says again and again in 1 Thessalonians, there's hope for another day too. A day when Jesus is gonna return and there will be no more persecution, there will be no more trials, there will be no more pain, no more Satan, no more tears, no more fear, no more shame. And we can have hope for that day because we will be vindicated in his presence. We will sit with him at his table and we will be changed once and for all. The Bible calls it glorified. And literally, Paul is saying to us and to them, I can't wait for that. I can't wait for the day when Christ returns, when his presence breaks in fully. And there you are standing with me before his throne. You will be my crown. Now, we read that and we're kind of like, I don't like this talk about crowns and prizes. I don't follow Jesus for a crown or for a prize, but you got to understand Paul is borrowing this really cool idea from the ancient Greek world here. Paul's borrowing a metaphor to make his point. He is speaking of a day when both he and the Thessalonians will stand before Jesus when he returns. The word here is parasuia, and it referred to when an emperor, a great king, would arrive in a town, and there would be this tremendous ceremony This word was also used when the Greek gods, for example, Zeus, would come and dwell among human beings. And so Paul's taking this idea of this ancient world and he's applying it to Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter, a Jewish rabbi who was just executed by the Roman Empire. And he says, it's not Caesar. It's not Zeus. It's this Jesus who will be ruler of all. And he will return. And on that day, I will receive a crown, which is another reference to the kind of laurel wreath that an athlete would get from that emperor. And in this metaphor he's using, Paul is saying, I'm the champion and you are my crown. And Jesus' return will be the occasion for this ceremony. Real quick Bible lesson here, because I get asked this a lot. There are actually going to be two judgments when Jesus returns. The first judgment is called the great white throne judgment. This is when every person ever will stand before God. And the only question will be, what did you do with my son? But there's also a judgment for believers. It's called the judgment of rewards. I know that sounds opposite in our minds, but it's actually going to be like a a good thing where we stand before him and he says, well done, way to live your life this way. And Paul's talking about that particular instance and he's anticipating it. And he's not saying, hey, look at me, look at the people with me, another notch in my belt, give me my crown. No, he's saying, if you're falling on your notes, Paul's crown is his friend standing with him before King Jesus. That's his prize. I can't wait to be standing there with you, Thessalonians. That will be the greatest prize I could ever have. I've talked about before when I spoke in high school 
A number of kids came to know Christ the first time I ever did any sort of public speaking. One of the girls came up to me about three months later and said, I can't wait to stand next to you with, when we stand before Jesus. And I'm like, huh? Now I get it. I can't wait to stand next to the people who God has allowed me to help influence, to experience the hope of the gospel. It's not a crown to say, look at me. It's a crown to say, thank you. Thank you for the people you've allowed us to influence. Do you want to influence people that way? If so, you got to enjoy the people God has put in your life. You have to take the Teflon off of your heart. That's tough for men. You got to take the Teflon off your heart. You got to be authentic. You got to pray like crazy. You got to give your heart away. You got to let people into your life in a real way. You got to be willing to sacrifice and you got to be willing to love them enough to help them grow. And so as we close, here's the only question I want to leave you with today. You can't just grow here on Sunday morning. You got to grow in your daily life. Who is someone God has put in your life that you could influence? Who is someone in your city, in this community, in this church, in your neighborhood, in your school? Now, whenever we talk about this kind of thing, I know what people are thinking. I can't do that. That's great for you. You're a pastor. But here's all I'd say. I guarantee you, you are two steps ahead of someone God has put in your life and you have something to offer them. There was a senior in high school. His name was Aaron. And he was one of the biggest influences of my life. Guess what? We didn't have a mentorship program. We didn't have a discipleship track. There was nothing that he did other than love me. Spent time with me. Invested in me. If you're in middle school, if you're in high school, you can invest in your friend's life in a positive way. If you're in college, God wants to use you. So ask the Spirit of God right now as we close, who who can I love like Paul loved? Who have you put in my life that I can influence who does not have hope, but who needs hope today? If you're following on your notes, Who is God calling me to influence for the glory of Jesus? Not for your glory, but for his glory. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the people who are part of this family. I pray that we could learn how to love one another in the same way that Paul loves right now, I want to pray against the tempter, the tempter who wants to speak to every person in this room, including me, saying, you can't do that. You're not far enough long on the journey. You don't know all the answers to all the questions. This is a lie. We set it aside and receive the truth that the Spirit of God lives in us, and therefore, we have an inner power that can influence others. Not in our own strength, but in your strength. So right now we lay our minds and our hearts open wide to you. And we ask who is someone that I could reach out to this week and just do life together with.
Lord, for some in here, maybe it's their kids. They just need to be more intentional in that relationship. Maybe it's a coworker. There's always the risk of rejection, but help us to push past that. We believe that following you is the abundant life. And we want others to experience that. So we offer ourselves to you now. Help us to love authentically, to be willing to sacrifice, and to set aside our own fears and concern and be willing to talk to people in the truth. We pray this would all be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.